0: In these dark and confusing and combative times, where in just one month, and it's a month that doesn't feel that atypical, we have impeachment hearings and Australia on fire and a near war with Iran and a deadly virus spreading around the world. We thought here at our show we would try the most radical counter-programming possible. And so today we bring you a show about delight. And our story starts with my coworker Bim Adewunmi, Growing up in East London, in Nigeria, learning about America from afar.
1: I just remember the feeling of swimming in a lot of American culture. I watched a lot of sitcoms. I remember watching Roseanne, I Dream of Jeannie, Family Matters.
0: It was a hodgepodge of Americana, a deep dive on Marilyn Monroe, but also the books of Maya Angelou, and also the Cosby spin-off show, A Different World.
1: And I remember kind of thinking, God, there are so many different types of Black people doing their own version of black people things. And that was really
0: interesting to me. They knew there were problematic things about America, of course. Who didn't know that.
1: But at the time, I was like, yay, American pop culture. This is great. And I had such a fixed idea of America. Like, there were a million high school movies and TV shows. So I was like, oh, yeah, I know what. If I was to land in an American school today, I would know exactly what to do. I know the crowd I would fit in with. It was going to be proms. It was going to be malls. I know where the cafeteria is. I understand that gym is a place of like hell. I understood everything around the idea of American school. I had a whole vision of myself (laughs) and where I would fit in the hierarchy. Seriously? Absolutely. I'd be like the, you know, semi-jog because I used to run track at school. So I was like, you know, semi-jog, but you know, sensitive theater child, but also kind of like, you know, everybody's friend. Yeah, and I would be approachable by people who weren't as cool as me. Like I had a whole strategy planned out. <laughs> like
0: <laughs> I wanted to. I totally pictured your American high school. It was.
1: I was going to be the everyman who was also very cool. And, you know, incredibly bright, very beautiful, very popular, but you know, wasn't conceited. It seemed a shame to waste all this knowledge that I had about how American society functions by me being in England. It was like, well, what good is all this knowledge here? If you have the knowledge, then you want to be tested. I wanted to be tested. The only real test is to actually live in America, to live that life.
0: And so when she was 19, after high school and before college, they don't call it high school and they don't call it college where she's from, she decided, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take the test. Live the dream. Go live in America. In fact, not just any old part of America, but a quintessentially American corner of America. And that's Summer Camp. Summer Camp's an institution they didn't really have in either of the countries where she'd spent her childhood, Nigeria and England. She was hired by a company that brings in teenagers from overseas to work as counselors. And she was assigned to a camp in a very un-British location, just outside Santa Cruz, California.
1: We were amongst redwoods, like some of the most ancient, most majestic things ever on the earth. Like they've seen f***ing dinosaurs. So we were between the redwoods and the ocean. And I was like, man, you just don't get vistas like this in East London. It felt like so American, like to be in nature like this. Mm -hmm. And we were sleeping in cabins and I was like, yeah, this is a camp all right.
0: In fact, over and over she found herself seeing and doing things that she'd only encountered in American pop culture. Like for instance, she ate in an old-fashioned diner with round stools at a long table and a waitress in a striped blouse who called her honey. Or there was the day that a guy in a grocery store aisle, a total stranger, hit on her, which she'd only seen on television, which apparently is not a thing British men do very much. And each time these things happened, it was exhilarating and surprising.
1: So one of the other counselors at uh, camp, Laurel, invited us all to her parents' place uh, on Lake Tahoe. And so we drove down in her car, which was a white El Camino truck, um, and she told us his name was Chester. And I thought, that's perfect. Chester. Chester, the El Camino truck. Yes. At that point, I, I didn't know how to drive. I still don't know how to drive um, because I lived in London and there's a fantastic tube and buses and whatever. And I walked everywhere.
0: Whatever. I don't want to hear your British
1: <laughs> it was great.
0: chauvinism over our American <laughs> way of life.
1: Oh, my God. Anyway, mm-hmm. we drove down to Tahoe. And on the way, you know, we had the windows down, we were playing loud music, we were wearing jeans, cut-offs, and I remember thinking, yet again, this moment of, like, stark clarity. I was like, oh my God, this is America. <laughs> like, I'm in a truck, we're on a road, the wind is in our hair, this is perfect. We're a bunch of girls laughing about whatever, and it's great. Like, it was a performance, but I knew all the words.
0: So you guys are playing the radio. Are you singing along with the radio?
1: Yes, classic road trip style.
0: And uh, do you remember what song?
1: Re- oh, I do remember one song, Super Girly. That was the year that Nora Jones's album, Come Away With Me, came out. Mm-hmm. I don't care what anyone says. That album is a banger. I love it still. Um, Nora Jones' voice is just perfect. And I remember the lead song, uh, Don't Know Why, was on the radio every single day. And I remember us... Singing it, you know the final bit where she kind of sings, "My in something, something, whatever," and then she says this great line, "And you'll be on my mind." And I remember we would sing that, and we put our hands to our chest, and we would kind of like extend our arms and be like, "You'll be," and we would all sing it. You'll And it was just like this very romantic, very kind of like windswept, very, it felt to me again, like the perfect soundtrack to my American summer.
0: America is real.
1: America is real. (laughs) I was like, oh my God, American things are happening to
0: me. Okay. So like I said at the beginning, our show today is about delight. And it was during that summer, Bim says, because it was so full of moments of delight, she started to really take notice of that feeling and think of it as a thing, a thing that she liked. It wasn't just enjoyable, she thought. That feeling seemed important somehow.
1: And I thought, "Oh, okay, this feeling is something worth repeating. And the idea that you can go and look for delight and you might find it was, I think, fully planted that summer. In you? In me, yeah. Like if I actively sought out delight, I might be able to find it and replicate it forever. So I thought, OK, we'll just keep doing that. That was kind of like a way of organizing my life.
0: By the way, a very un-British way to organize her life, Bim says. To embrace delight wholeheartedly and unselfconsciously.
1: Fundamentally, I'm fighting against every urge in me, which is kind of like, don't. Don't do that. Because I'm, I'm still British. I can't help that. So I'm always just thinking to myself, just kind of like, oh, is that too much? Like, I feel, I feel very much like somebody's disapproving nanny. Stop that. That's too much emotion. You know, there's a reason why our national sound is a tut. Stop that. Stop it. (laughs) It's an admonishment. It's like, stop it, you know. There used to be a, a talk show, and the, the the theme song was a little child singing this very sing songy voice. It'll never work, it'll never work, <laughs> and that is how I feel about would, most things.
0: That would never be a show here. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: But this kid just started out this soul voice, and then all the other like a chorus of voices joined, it. It'll never work, and I, just, and I remember it's, it just make every time I see it, I'm like, aha, that is the spirit of Britain. So there's this poet that I discovered um, a couple of years ago. He's called Ross Gay. And he's written a book where he basically keeps track of the things that delight him. And that's things, that's people, that's moments, whatever. And the word he used was negligence. He said it's a negligence if people don't take the time to honor the things that they take delight in. But more importantly, that they share the things that they take delight in. And if you don't do that, there's there's a loss there. You have to do it to achieve humanity. You have to share delight.
0: And that's what we're going to be doing today, right?
1: Yes, that's exactly what we're going to be doing today. We're going to think about what delights us, why it delights us, why it's important to cultivate delight.
0: And with that, let me just hand over the show to you. You'll host the show from here. Okay, you want to do the part where you say from WBEZ Chicago? <laughs> I really do. Okay, hit it.
1: <laughs> do I say WBEZ? Sure. Okay. <laughs> From WBEZ Chicago, it's this American life. I'm Vim Adiwonmi. Stay with us. Act One The Job of Delight. It's one thing to be attuned to delight but it's quite another to scrape off a sample, stick it on a slide, and place it under a microscope. Enter Ross Gay, the poet I was talking about a moment ago. Ross is an English professor at Indiana University, and a couple of years ago, he embarked on a specific mission, to think about delight. He made it a practice, in fact. For one calendar year, Ross would ask himself, what delights me? And then he would write it down. He set rules, he would do it every day, He would draft them quickly, and every single delight would be written by hand. He called them essayettes. Some of these essayettes eventually became a book, the Book of Delights. Here's Ross reading an excerpt of delight number 80 from the book, Tomato on Board, in his living room in Bloomington.
2: What you don't know until you carry a tomato seedling through the airport and onto a plane is that carrying a tomato seedling through the airport and onto a plane will make people smile at you almost like you're carrying a baby. I did not know this until today, carrying my little tomato, about three or four inches high in its four-inch plastic starter pot, which my friend Michael gave to me, smirking about how I was going to get it home. Something about this, at first, felt naughty. Not comparing a tomato to a baby, but carrying the tomato onto the plane. And so I slid the thing into my bag while going through security, which made them pull the bag for inspection. When the security guy saw it was a tomato, he smiled and said, I don't know how to check that. Have a good day. But I quickly realized one of its stems, which I almost wrote as arms, was broken from the jostling, and it only had four of them. So I decided I better just carry it out in the open. And the shower of love began. Before boarding the final leg of my flight, one of the workers said, Nice tomato, which I don't think was a come on. And the flight attendant asked about the tomato at least five times, not an exaggeration, every time calling it my tomato. Where's my tomato? How's my tomato? You didn't lose my tomato, did you? She even directed me to an open seat in the exit row. Why don't you guys go sit there and stretch out? I gathered my things and set the little guy in the window seat so she could look out. When I got my water, I poured some into the little guy's soil. When we got bumpy, I put my hand on the little guy's container, careful not to snap another arm off. And when we landed and the pilot put the brakes on hard, my arm reflexively went across the seat, holding the little guy in place, the way my dad's arm would when he had to brake in that car without seatbelts to speak of, in one of my very favorite gestures in the Encyclopedia of Human Gestures.
1: The Book of Delights is a series of daily snapshots into one man's habits and pleasures. If you ever wanted an essay about the specific sensation of applying coconut oil to a shower damp body, that would be delight number 101. Airports and the people Ross encounters in them come up a fair bit. His garden, where we spent a very delightful afternoon talking about bumblebees and potatoes, is the location of many a delight. Some of the delights in the book were things that surprised him, while others were looking back in time, memories of people no longer here. A lot of them featured familiar faces in familiar places. Ross was getting to reassess his environment and consider it through a new lens, a delightful lens.
2: I was learning as I was going and Frankly, I was probably learning how much some of these things delighted me. The question is always, why does that delight me? What does it do to a person to study delight or, as it emerges, to study joy every single day for a year? What do you discover?
1: One of the things he discovered is the mechanics of how to find delight every day as a discipline. Because delight doesn't just arrive. You need to actively go looking for it.
2: Being in a a state of, uh, like, trying to train your curiosity and trying to train this sense of not knowing. Delight and curiosity are really tied up. Like, you have to be okay with not knowing things, or you have to be actually invested and happy about not knowing things.
1: The Book of Delights is a peculiar thing, an undertaking of serious academic rigor that also makes you feel good those things aren't meant to go together. The book offers up many thoughts on what delight is or what it could be, but it never defines it explicitly. The takeaway is that delight, while important, is hard to pin down. Reading the book and talking to Ross about this made me feel like I was floating on a chemically enhanced, but perfectly legal in 11 states, cloud. I began to think of him as a sort of personal delight guru. And so my questions for him began to take on the strong whiff of a patchouli joss Did you end up with a grand unifying theory on what delight is?
2: <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but I did end up with what feels like a kind of beginning theory of what joy is. And like, <laughs> I just had an image. And delight is like the butterflies flying around and landing on the thing that is joy.
1: Right. See? Patchouli. To Ross, an important part of delight is that it's an invitation. By loving something, we allow other people an opportunity to love it too. Sharing. Tapping someone on the shoulder to say, hey, look.
2: So often I feel like I've had the experience of walking through the world and not seeing anything. And then someone's like, did you see how that, you know, you don't see it until you see it. And then when you see it, you're like, whoa. We just had a bunch of people over here the other night, and there was was one of them, uh, this couple had this little kid, and so he starts yelling, rainbow, rainbow! (laughs) And what did we do? We were all in here talking, being adults. Boom! We ran outside and started looking at the rainbow. Thank you. Thank you. It's like, come gasp with me. Come gasp with me. This is unbelievable.
1: Which brings us to Act 2, the squeals on the bus. It's not surprising that it's a child that runs in to tell everyone to come look at a rainbow. There's a feeling that delight is the preserve of children, and any adult who finds delight easily might be a simpleton, or a Pollyanna. Perhaps you've noticed this whole hour is an argument against that. But for Act 2, let's spend a little time with a five-year-old. My colleague Robin Semyon's son, Cole. He recently had an experience around a mundane thing most adults loathe. Commuting. He was going to ride the school bus for the very first time. Robin has the story.
3: Cole has been looking forward to this exact moment for years. More than kindergarten or his first day at school, taking the bus to Cole is epic. So one morning this past September, with his new sneakers and Batman backpack on, Cole and I walked down our driveway.
4: I just can't wait. I'm a bus rider now. What happened to old Cole? Yeah, old Cole is dead now. Oh, wow. Yeah, when we get old, really old, um, we start to die.
3: Well, these are very deep thoughts for the bus. Riding the bus to Cole was not about riding the bus. It meant he was gaining on his big sister, Josie. She's 10 getting a hair closer to that mysterious, frustratingly out of reach thing that she has. Autonomy.
4: (gasps) Now wait for the bus here. No, we're gonna walk down to the bus stop together. Come on. Why? Because
3: that's where the bus comes together. Down on the corner. Did you know that? No. For a kid obsessed with this trip, he's surprisingly vague on some of the details. See the tree? What tree? That tree right down there on the corner.
4: Yeah that's our tree, mm-hmm. and then we have to wait there. Mm-hmm. Is that how Josie does it every day? That's how she does it every single day. That's how she's been doing it for three years. What?
5: I know, now it's your turn.
4: Yeah, and, and now it's not her turn.
3: <laughs> we get to the corner and wait. Hey, good morning. Our neighbor Ian yeah. pulls up. Sees us and gets out of his car.
4: How Guess what? What's that? I'm waiting for, for my bus. Your first
3: day? Yep, yeah, first time on the bus. Oh, <laughs> <Congratulations>. <laughs> Thank you. you okay. Cole beams. And pretty soon.
4: I think I hear a bus. You do? Oh, it was just that car.
3: Cole wills the bus to come sooner, like everyone at every bus stop ever has done.
4: I, thi- I think I heard my-, my bus. It sounded different. I think I heard it. Uh, I don't think so yet,
3: bub. We practice greeting the bus driver.
4: I'm going to say, Hi, bus driver. Uh, I'm a little bit sad to say, How are you doing?
3: We do this a couple more times till Cole tells me to stop because it's boring.
4: A little bit boring.
3: And then more waiting. Cole's mood dips. He has doubts.
4: Um, But what if there's not a spot for me in the bus? Oh, there'll be a spot for you. They know
3: you're coming. We told them you're coming. Okay? Okay.
4: I was taking off that bus. It's taking too long for me. We've been here for, like, over an hour.
3: It's been ten minutes.
4: And it's taking too long. It's taking crappy long.
3: Crappy long? Yes. That's not something that you say. Crappy. <laughs> no. no, we don't say that. Fine. I'm a little worried that maybe Cole has over-imagined the bus ride and it won't live up. That years of anticipation will only disappoint him in the end. Yeah. And then, rounding the corner. <gasps> the bald bus driver. Oh,
6: man. That's my bus! It's really on <laughs> Stand to the sun.
3: Okay, let's go, let's go. Cole tears past me and up the bus steps like it was nothing. He's daring, I think to myself.
4: Bye, Mom.
3: Cole stood for a second longer, facing the rows of seats and kids, taking it all in. Completely lit up.
4: I can't believe it! I'm on the bus, yes! Yes, it's my first time!
3: He's fine. Better than fine.
4: Now this is what I'm talking about.
1: That was New Cole with his producer, Robin Simeon. Act 3. Mrs. Meek shall inherit the earth. I think delight might actually be more profound when you've experienced more, including real loss and tragedy. Ross Gay's Book of Delights is edged in despair. In it, Ross writes about his dearly departed friends, his Uncle Earl, his father. He calls them his deceased beloveds. But that's the way of delight.
2: When I think of joy, like grown-up joy is made up of our sorrow just like it's made up of what is pleasing to us. Often it felt like I wasn't going to be able to talk about delight without talking about these other things, you know. Um, Delight often implies its absence.
1: Noriko Meek knows all about that. After 72 years on Earth, she's made some changes lately. Her daughter, Miki, talked to her about it. My mom is 72
6: years old and in this new phase of her life where she's all about doing whatever she wants. I'm glad for her, but sometimes it's kind of annoying. Recently, I was her chauffeur on a road trip through Texas and New Mexico. She woke me up at 5.30 in the morning so we could drive an hour to watch the sunrise from some sand dunes in the middle of nowhere. She insisted on hanging out in a cold, crappy parking lot to take pictures of a rainbow. And when I asked if I could interview her, she told me maybe. But first, she needed to take a bath, her second one for the day. Oh. When she finally got out, she sat next to me on the clean bed we were sharing. One, two, three. And then pulled out some floss. I
7: should clean my teeth.
6: You're going to clean your teeth while we're talking? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So gross. No worry. (laughs) I can do whatever. Except for that I'm sleeping right next to you. (laughs) I suck that. The first time I noticed she'd changed was over the summer, standing outside of my brother's house. We'd been talking about where to go grocery shopping when she suddenly switched subjects. She asked me, with this smiling but also totally serious face, if I could tell that she was glowing I wasn't totally sure what she was talking about. So I told her, um, yeah, I guess you look nice. And then I just as quickly changed the subject back to the cheap produce section at Trader Joe's. So why did you ask me that then? Well,
7: because to me, so it was so obvious, so you've probably seen it. Because inside, I mean, I think I was glowing inside, just radiating joy, just delight, you know.
6: I don't think I've ever used the word delight in a conversation with you, ever.
7: I don't think I start using these words, yeah, just recently, I think. Because I tell my friends my life is, you know, just delightful, you know.
6: Just, you say that? Yeah, I do. I've never heard you say that.
7: My To my friends.
6: This is not the mom I grew up with. She was practical, frugal, and not a big fan of hugs, kisses, or elaborating on her feelings. My mom was married to my dad for 43 years. They met in college in their early 20s and then went on to have six kids. My mom stayed at home with us full time, and she was kind of a hard ass. Okay, so what does the word delight mean to you? How would you even define that? Mm, Just delight is
7: just like uh, light your heart up, like uh, ignite something, you know? At the moment, you just feel lightness.
6: So if you were to list about, like, what delights you— What's well, on that my, list? Okay,
7: like uh, first thing in the morning, I wake up and I go to the bathroom and my total toilet is warm.
6: You have a, a Japanese toilet with a warm toilet yeah, seat. and
7: I just sit on it. It's just so warm and I just, I am so happy. I really feel it. I am so happy.
6: When I think about. <laughs> it a- every morning. Yeah, it's a consistent delight. Mm-hmm. Consistent delight. Other things on our list of delights eating discounted donuts for breakfast. She keeps her freezer stocked with them, going to a ballet class for seniors, and reading biographies in bed for two hours every night. She also started traveling for fun for the very first time in her life. Right now, she's on a big nature streak. She's hiked through Joshua Tree, the Badlands, Death Valley, the Pyrenees, and on and on and on. She exhausts me. So have you ever felt this way before? No. mm -mm. Never. Never? Not even, like, when we were kids or when you had us?
7: No. You sat down. Yeah. I don't think I felt delighted.
6: What did you feel?
7: I was glad you guys are born and safe. But I don't think, like, uh, raising kids, taking care of your dad. Yeah, I don't think I ever used the word delight. Because, I mean, I place myself always, like, uh, my knees or whatever last. You know, like, uh, money or whatever. You know, time. But then after kids are all gone and your dad's gone, finally I have my life. Mm. And I can do as I want whenever, whatever. Just uh, no stress, no uh, responsibility. That's why I say light, you know, I feel so light. And uh, I think delight, delightful is just the exact adjective for my life at this point. My life is really amazing. Okay. And then I see movies, right? You know, three movies a week sometimes. Like, it's like 8.30 in the morning. That's just wonderful.
6: How many other people in the movie theater are Everybody. with me? <laughs> just me. Just great. After my dad died four years ago from cancer, my mom completely fell apart in a way I'd never seen her before. She suddenly became needy. She openly cried. Before then, all her energy had gone into keeping my dad alive. She'd spent a decade caring for him, constantly driving him to the ER in the middle of the night and checking his oxygen levels while he slept. We never really talked about what it was like for her watching him deteriorate so much that sometimes he felt like a stranger. But then when he was suddenly gone, all the feelings she'd pushed down came out in this big, devastating wave. For a while, she could barely function. Four years. It took four
7: years I really took a very small step forward after your dad died just to make sure I'm alive. So each morning I get up and I have this terrible pain in my chest, but then I just say, okay, I think I can make myself live till the end of this day, and that's all I thought about.
6: Do you feel surprised sometimes that you feel this good? I mean,
7: uh, when dad died and I was just so sad, I didn't think this would ever happen. I I
6: really thought my life was over. My mom grieved intensely like this for about six months, and then I asked her to come live with me in my tiny apartment for a while. She said yes, and I didn't expect her to. I thought she'd worry too much about being a burden. But this time she agreed with me that staying with me might actually make her feel better. I wouldn't let her sleep on the couch, so we got into this whole nighttime routine where we'd put on our pajamas and read in my bed like some old married couple. My brother came to visit us once. At 10 p.m., my mom tapped me on the knee and said, time to hit the hay mick. We stood up together, and he was like, what is happening? My mom's choice to stay with me marked the beginning of her opening herself up and putting herself first. Right now, her travel calendar for 2020 is already all booked up. Alabama, Alaska, Italy, Japan, Chicago, and Spain.
7: Maybe because
6: my life is getting shorter, that pushes me to be more...
7: uh Courageous. Yeah. You know, so every day I wake up, like, with some expectation, anticipation. Hmm. Yeah, on my calendar, there's nothing I don't want to
6: do. Um, if Dad had stayed alive and been healthy, do you think you could still feel the way that you do now?
7: Probably not. Isn't that terrible? Because uh, with him, I my life, you know, I'll have more responsibilities. He will be number one in my life. And then, and then uh, my needs will come after his. Yeah, so it's just almost sometimes sounds like, oh, I'm glad he's gone, you know? I'm not saying that. But because he's gone, this is the life I have, and I just want it to be delightful, you know? I think it's okay.
6: It is okay. Yeah. This question's kind of us dumb. That's my mom telling me she thinks my questions are kind of dumb. Why is it dumb? Delightful. Just too annoying. People think you're really annoying? Yeah, I think so. That's why,
7: you know, I don't know why you want to do this because uh, the people think, oh my gosh, I'm so sick of listening to her. Just so self-absorbed, you know.
6: And so what would you say to that?
7: But <laughs> I'm sorry, I, am, I, I do feel that way, genuinely. <laughs> and sometimes I feel like I earned it.
1: Makey Meek. A constant delight. Also, a producer on our show. Coming up, would you call yourself a dealer of delight? Hmm. you the
8: feds? I'm a dealer now. I knew it was a setup. I knew it. Um, yes, okay. I'm a peddle delight. I'm slanging delight. You know what I'm saying? I'm on the internet corners. What you need, what you need, I got it.
1: That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. It's This American Life. I'm Bim Adiwunmi, taking over the show from Ira for the day. Yes, we are coming over here, stealing your jobs. Today's show, the show of delights. Stories about how we go about making and feeling and actively seeking out delight. Which is all around us, by the way. The poet, Ross Gay, ambassador for delight, writes about a time he was in New York and saw a man feeding a pigeon perched on his shoulder. He looks closer,
2: and sees the bird dipping its head into the hand the man must have been holding very near to his own face, so that the feeding was not only kind of romantic, but alluded to that original feeding the bird experienced, a mother dropping masticated victuals into the tiny chirper's gaped mouth, which is, after all, the first romance.
1: It sounds like something out of a children's picture book, doesn't it? Feeding, caring, being companions to our animals. And with that, we've arrived at Act 4, the elephant in the bedroom. Deesa Scaff has a job that's out of a children's book. She's a night zookeeper at the Denver Zoo. So while most people are asleep, she's doling out snacks, checking the animals are warm and cosy, turning out their lights and saying goodnight. Dana Chivas recently spent a night with Disa at the zoo. Being at the zoo at night is like being backstage hours after a play has ended.
5: The public is long gone, the vendors have packed up their dip and Dots and Zoo Swag. The paths that wind around the animal exhibits are empty and dark, and a little creepy. I follow Disa's flashlight as we walk around. Disa, your job is very dark.
9: Yeah, but you can't see where you're walking.
5: Usually it's just her, the security guards, another night zookeeper, and 3,000 wild animals. Disa has the best job in the whole world. It's the best job in the whole world. See? We walk into a building through a back door, the special zookeeper entrance. Disa turns the lights on, and I see something I've never seen before. An elephant on the ground, on his side. Sleeping. Describe it. So, Chuck is sleeping. Oh,
9: he's waking up. He just stretched his back leg out. He's got to push-up with his front feet. Doing some, uh upward facing dog stretch. And now he's ready for some food.
5: Each of the 450 different species at this zoo has its own nighttime routine. And Disa's put them to bed so many times by now, she knows their individual sleep preferences. Where they like to sleep, how they like to sleep, with whom they like to sleep. There's a lady lizard who uses a male lizard as a mattress, and lemurs who cuddle in branches. The gorillas are the touchiest about their sleep. Disa avoids them after five. Do any animals spoon? Oh,
9: a lot of animals spoon. Our Red River hog spoon. The Red River hogs? Yeah, we'll see them. They sleep
5: like a pack of sausages. Sorry, hogs. I'm sure she means chicken sausages. There are one-year-old Komodo dragon siblings who sleep crammed together inside a log. A quick aside, because I find it delightful. Those little Komodo guys don't have a father because their mother impregnated herself. I'm not kidding. Female Komodo dragons can impregnate themselves. Deesa knows all the animals, many on a first-name basis. Yeah, she checks on Daphne the crocodile and Coco the porcupine, Murray the moray, and Fern the bongo. Fern? Hey, Fern. Fern's trying to eat my microphone. We're We're just saying night-night. <laughs> These animals know Disa. They have a relationship. They're not alarmed to see us. In fact, a lot of them seem expectant, like they've been waiting for her to come by and tuck them in. In the kangaroos' section, everyone is crouching in a group. Good night, Roos. Bakari the zebra is still standing up. Zebras can rest on their feet. Good night, sir. Bugsy and Boo Otter literally cannot wait one more second for their dinner. I was going to play you a bunch more cute animal sounds here, but my editor said move it along. So here's some music instead. What's so charming about animals going to sleep? Is it that we're seeing creatures that are so different from us doing something so familiar? Reminding us of a commonality, that we all have to do this one thing to survive? You know what? Who cares? Here's a baby flamingo who wants us to leave him alone so he can get some shut-eye. Sorry. Disa has the easygoing and gentle demeanor of someone who legitimately loves her job. A job we all said we wanted as kids, along with firefighter and astronaut. And unlike the rest of us civilians at the zoo, she gets to have direct contact with the animals, take care of them, which she loves. When I'm there, the zookeepers are hand-feeding Eleanor, a four-month-old kudu, which is a kind of antelope. Eleanor stands on spindly legs and chugs the entire bottle in one go. Good girl, Eleanor. Eleanor's dad, Joe, comes over, looking for some treats, which Disa gives him, and then she does something else.
9: Did you just eat one of Joe's treats? I did. I wasn't. not as tasty as I thought they'd be. I just ate a little, like, that bit.
5: I take a bite. It's kind of grassy. Disa says primate biscuits aren't bad. Then we both confessed to trying dog food when we were kids. There is one animal who's having a rough go of it. We walk around to the back of the great ape house, and Disa points her flashlight at a tree. At the top, tangled up in some branches, is a sheet blowing gently in the wind.
9: One of the reasons we came down here is we have, um, Jaya the orangutan. He is... Oh my gosh. He is newer to the zoo. Is that, um, so he's currently sleeping in a tree. Wait, that's... No, so that's, that's yeah. an
5: orangutan. Wait, yeah. is he Hi wearing Jaya. a blanket? Yeah, he's he's wrapped in a sheet. Jaya should be uh, inside, where it's warm. So Orangutans said, are from the rainforests of Sumatra and Borneo. And I sound this baffled because I really thought I was just looking at a wayward sheet caught in a tree. But then the sheet moved. Jaya was under it, clutching it tightly around his little body. It really looks like there's a little person up there. yeah has only been at this zoo for a few months. He moved here from a zoo in Minnesota in August. He's still getting used to it. A few days ago, something spooked him. He retreated to the yard and climbed up a tree. Do you worry about him in the cold like this? We do
9: worry about him. Yeah. Um, so from the records today, it looks like the keeper took some binoculars and tried to look at his fingers and toes to see if there were any like signs of frostbite. Um, and his, And they're really bright red. So we'll just, you know, um, check on him throughout the night.
5: I guess one of the complicated things about delight is that it can exist like a kernel at the center of misfortune. Sometimes delight is found in the ability to take care of another living thing that needs you. It's nice to be needed. Do you have a favorite animal?
9: Um, My favorite animal is Rudy the rhino. Why? Because he's the best.
5: Why is he the best?
9: He's like a puppy. Yeah. So he's really gentle and nice. And mostly I think I love Rudy because um, most of the animals that I have built a kind of relationship with because I see him all the time. It's usually because I give them food. Rudy, I do not give him food. But he... Will like come to me when I call him. Like, if he's outside and I need him to come inside because it's too cold, I call him and he'll come over. Yeah, he like responds to me, and I don't know, he's my best friend.
5: (laughs) This thing about Rudy and what a nice guy he is what if the joy we get from interacting with animals, the idea that we can have relationships of mutual affection, is a total illusion? What if the truth is that, for these animals anyway, Our relationships are mostly transactional. Does the delight then disappear? Or maybe that is the transaction. We give them food, and they give us delight.
9: Just got a text message.
5: There's one last moment I want to tell you about. So
9: one of our hoofstock keepers, Matt, is asking, we can check on Charlie's guillotine door to make sure it got, through, got closed. He's sure he did it, but you know how it is. He'll wake up at 2 a.m. in a panic.
5: Charlie is a Vietnamese so, pot-bellied pig. His there's daykeeper, there's Matt, couldn't remember if he'd shut the door to his yard. We'll we go to we check on Charlie. Yes, his door and is closed. Busted. He's right. completely sacked out. He's made himself a big nest of hay, somehow managed to cover most of his body with it, his head included. So all we can see is his belly rising and falling with each deep, sleepy breath.
9: Night, Charlie.
4: the
5: boy. I like Charlie. He's terse, but uncomplicated, you know? He knows his name, he recognizes that Deesa is talking to him, and he responds. They're communicating across species. For me, this one short interaction contains all the magic of her job. Deesa and a pig
1: are talking to each other. Dana Chivas, whose love for her dog Delights Me, co-produced today's show. And for those of you who care, Jaya the orangutan is back indoors, frostbite free. Act 5. Delight at the end of the tunnel.
2: I suspect it is simply a feature of being an adult, what I will call being grown, or a grown person.
1: Again, Ross Gay
2: to have endured some variety of thorough emotional turmoil, to have made your way to the brink and, if you're lucky, to have stepped back from it, if not permanently, then for some time or time to time.
1: This is delight number 100, groan. Ross goes on to talk about the importance of of seeing things as they are in the moment where you don't feel panic or despair
2: or doom. And knowing what I have felt before, and might feel again, feel a sense of relief, which is cousin to, or rather, water to, delight.
1: This last story is about someone who's defined by delight, but then loses it. I first got to know her through her blog, Little Known Black History Facts, which is one of my favorite things. It's an affectionate parody of the Black History Month rollout of African-American excellence that happens every February. But the achievements on this site... They're all made up. Things like, inventor of the church clap, or first person to put more than 25 barrettes in one child's hair at one time. You know, black people stuff. The person behind these perfectly observed jokes is one of the funniest people I know. Her name's Tracy Clayton, although you may know her as Brokey McPoverty on the internet, where she has legions of fans. Tracy ran little-known black history facts for five years, She's the creator of so many of my favorite things. But Little Known Black History Facts is the one I think about most often, even if Tracy doesn't. Do you remember anything from that ridiculous blog? No, there was Derek Morris, who was the first person to rap loudly to himself while standing at a bus stop? Don't like him. no, there was
8: <laughs> How dare you?
1: There was Haverford Bliss and he was the first person to renege in a game of spades. You know what I don't even play spades. I just know that that is a bad thing, yeah, I think. That's it. <laughs> there was also George G. Money Spencer who was the first <laughs> he
8: was the first person to
1: end every sentence with. It is what it is. Mm, Yeah, that's aka
8: the patron saint of reality shows. Because they say that all the time. Exactly. At the end of the day, it is what it is. Of course (laughs)
1: not. Another great one was. Tracy and I are friends now. But I was a fan first. A big fan. What makes her comedy so good is her incredible observation skills. She works from a position of what the Southern writer Kiese Lehman calls black abundance. Her references come from her own black American experience growing up in Louisville, Kentucky, as well as wider culture. She marries high concept to the very silly, and little-known black history facts was just one of the many things she created. Tracy's a one-woman production line of golden internet content. That gifted brain of hers spots delight and amplifies it. In fact, it felt like Tracy's entire life was about cultivating glee. And then, seemingly at the height of her powers, she just stopped making stuff she lost her ability to feel delight
8: i felt like i was laying on the bottom of the ocean floor and looking up and like i could see like the sun and like people on a beach somehow but i'm just like miles and miles and leagues and leagues away from it things got really bad for tracy
1: and for her that was extreme because delight wasn't just a job it was also her identity this is a story of what happened when things went dark for tracy and how she made it back to a place of delight. In 2015, Tracy and her friend Heaven Negatu began making a weekly podcast with BuzzFeed called Another Round.
8: Hi, everyone. I'm Heaven. I'm Tracy. And welcome to Another Round with Heaven and Tracy. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> there was
1: nothing else like it at the time. Very, very Two black women trading witty banter and talking about the stuff that was important to them, yep. fueled by their natural chemistry, so and of course, given stuff the stuff name stuff. of the show, a good amount of booze. Another round did so much, so well. Interviews with academics, comedians, and MacArthur geniuses like Lynn manuel Miranda and Nicole Hannah-Jones. They even interviewed then-presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. But that was only part of it. Their show was funny, intellectual, thoughtful, and also deeply, brilliantly silly. I loved their quizzes. One of Heaven's masterpieces was a multiple-choice quiz on fake names. Or, as she put it...
8: Is this a, a white man's name or just some syllables I mashed together? British edition. The British people already have super women. just names. doing the most already. Uh, <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, yeah. In this
1: quiz, Tracy had part. to guess which of the names Heaven was All reading right, right. belonged to an actual real person.
8: Alright. Frim Fram Fiddlesworth. <laughs> Primpram Willoughby. I quit. Tristram Hunt. <laughs> Rim Ram Pendleton. <laughs> I'm gonna say it's one of the last two, I vote for Tristram.
4: You're correct! Yes! Oh my God, Tracy,
8: I'm so proud of
1: you. Another round was a hit. They were doing live shows, selling out venues across the country and abroad. They won awards, they sold merchandise. Heaven and Tracy were being recognised by fans in the street. As it grew, the show was getting more demanding to make. It needed more money, more staff, more time. And they weren't getting any of that. Then Heaven left BuzzFeed. She took a job at The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and came back to record new episodes when she could. But things weren't the same. Tracy understood, but it was still hard on both of them.
8: We didn't have a good way to manage that transition. And I think that since I was the only one in the building who was, like, accessible all the time, um, a lot of the work fell on me and my shoulders. Um, which, I'm happy to do the work, but I, I got tired and I didn't know it, you know? Mm-hmm. I would wake up like, oh my God, again. Again. You know, I can't do this, but I'm doing it anyway.
1: I was working at BuzzFeed during this time and ended up co-hosting three episodes, sitting in for either Tracy or Heaven. There's one episode in particular that really sticks in my mind.
8: So, everyone, heaven sends all of her love from the very, very, very top and bottom of her heart. She is going to be back soon. She's still busy making magic and stuff with Mr. Colbert. Um, but in the meantime and in between time, we've got a Bim in the studio. Woo. Yes. Woo. My shoulders are working.
1: Mm, hit with mm, 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 hey, hit hey, him with the hey, shoulders. Hey, hey, hit him with the shoulders. Hey, hey. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. It was a ridiculous time. <laughs> that sounds like so much fun. <laughs> it was the funnest episode. And I think afterwards, I was chatting to you and it was like, okay, well, we finished that up. We, you know, done recording. And I, I was like, so what are you up to for the rest of the day? And you said, back to bed for a depression nap.
8: <laughs> <laughs> like the minute the mic went off, you were just kind of like, all right, I'm yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, back to my real life. That's very true. You remember that at all? No, not that. I mean I remember that episode mm-hmm. and that stuff, but I don't remember the depression nap stuff. And I think that's because I was depressed and like your memory just doesn't it's not there. Also when everyday feels like another day and another day. It's just like I couldn't even tell you like what year that happened. Mm. But um uh it, it sounds sounds about right. I feel like that's the theme for a pretty long period of my life.
1: Listening back to the episodes of the show that aired during this dark period, it's hard to discern that anything was amiss. And that's because Tracy proved to be adept at employing that age-old showbiz trick. She faked it.
8: Having to fake the funk, as it were, was driven mostly by I can't let other people down. And it was also sort of like muscle memory, I guess, um, I'm really, really, really good at smile talk.
1: When you are faking delight, do you feel delight? Like, does it bleed into it?
8: Um, yeah. Um, I I would kind of like get lost and like kind of caught up in the conversation. So I did have chances to get kind of like carried away. The effects were not long term, mm-hmm. but um, it did give me a nice little little break, little pockets of okayness here and there. But I tell you what, like, as soon as the interviews and stuff are over, stepping out of that, uh, stepping out of the studio, it was just like, like I had gone 12
1: rounds with Tyson. The show eventually went on hiatus. Tracy went on disability. At first, it was a relief to just stay home. Leaving the house would have meant dealing with New York, the noise, the people, the subway. But then Tracy realized she was staying in because she was afraid to leave her apartment.
8: This one time, like, I was supposed to go somewhere. I was all dressed. Somehow, by the grace of God and whoever else is watching, like, I was dressed. I looked decent. I didn't look depressed, quote-unquote. And I got to the door of my apartment, and I thought about the trek on the subway. And I was like, I can't. And I just, I didn't go out. I put myself through all of that, like, getting dressed. And, like, it had taken hours for this to happen. And I'm fighting with myself, like, be kind to yourself. It's okay if your eyebrows don't match. It's okay if it's taking you four hours to get ready. Just do it. And then by the time I got to the door, I was just like, I expended so much energy getting myself together. I cannot also expend energy, like, trying to make my brain focus on, like, which stop do I get off of.
1: She did less and less. And the fact that she was doing less made her feel even worse. She turned her quick, talented mind inwards, turned herself into a target, and was relentless at attacking herself. She couldn't turn it off. Tracy stopped cleaning her apartment,
8: barely changed clothes. I just remembered being in my room, on my bed, the entire place is a mess. And I was just laying there and I was just thinking about how nobody knows, you know, that right now this is where I am. And I remember getting my phone to text my friend Teddy, who lives in Louisville. And I was just like, I'm having a tough time and I just need somebody to know it. And he was very gracious. He was like, you know, I'm glad that you reached out and I know it now. Um, But I don't know. There was something about... Something about just wanting somebody to know that you're sad. That I was like, wow, I'm really sad. After almost a year of feeling truly terrible,
1: Tracy had something that felt like a breakthrough. It started with a ritual she'd been doing every night for months.
8: Oh, there was this moment when I realized that um, Otis Redding's Sitting on the Dock of the Bay is about depression. And I was like, oh my gosh, this entire time, are you kidding me? I thought it was just some like old man song about fishing, because I only knew the chorus. Um, But the words, oh my gosh, sitting on the dock of the bay, watching the the tide tide roll away. Yeah, just wasting time, just like nothing else to do, nowhere else to go.
1: So Tracy had a playlist of sad songs, including Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. And every night around 9 p.m., she'd stand at the window of her apartment, smoking and drinking and looking down at the street, feeling like a caricature of a sad girl.
8: And this one night, after however many months of this ritual, um I just started to dance. Like, first, it was like a little sway to like whatever song was playing. It may have been the oldest reading song because I mean, you know, it's got like a little sit, no no you know, it's got like a you can two step a little bit to it. And after that, I was like, maybe I want to listen to other things to dance to. And so I switched to a different playlist, couldn't tell you what it was. And I think I danced for like an hour, danced and smoked and just drank. And it felt good and I was smiling and I was confused, but I was like, don't pick it apart. Like just, and I also like, I could feel how ridiculous I probably looked because I mean, it's not like I was two seven the whole time, right? It was just like some weird interpretive, like can this muscle still move? Can I still do a back bend? I cannot, I learned that. (laughs) But um, it felt, I don't know, it almost felt like my body was like trying to reach my brain somehow. Because it wasn't my brain that told my body to start dancing, I'm pretty sure. I think my body was like, you know what? (laughs) You know who I haven't talked to in a long time? The brain. (laughs) Let me check in with the brain and see how things are going. Oh, terribly? Well, let's dance a little bit. during
1: these months she also looked at professionals and she chose a couple who looked like her understood her
8: they are all and when i say all i mean both my therapist and my psychiatrist don't know how it happened but they are both black women yeah they will both do um not interview sessions online so i didn't have to move leave my house when i couldn't and i didn't have to put on pants when i couldn't <laughs> One day I got emotional because I woke up late and I forgot about my appointment. So I'm on the little Skype or whatever. And I had my bonnet on. And I was like, I'm so sorry that I still have this bonnet on. I know it's not professional. And my therapist said, it's okay, I wear one too. And I was like, every black girl should know what this is, you know? And since then, I just show up in my bonnet like, what's up?
1: Eventually, sometime last year, Tracy found herself asking variations of the same question. She thinks Heaven might have mentioned it. It was this. Is there anything good that your depression has given you? It sounded perverse, but she couldn't stop thinking about it, couldn't stop mulling the question. And she found that thinking about the answers made her feel good. When she mentioned it to her therapist, she told Tracy that finding something good in a bad situation could be a good sign of healing.
8: And I was like, sounds fake, but what do you mean? <laughs> and she was like, um, she said the thing where like it helps you connect with your emotions better. I don't know what that means. I don't know what it means to connect with an emotion. Like, I feel it. Mm-hmm. I recognize it. I don't want it. I don't like it. You know, I'm ignoring it. I guess that's what she means. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think you're answering the question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You check that off my to-do list.
1: <laughs> so with the question in mind, Tracy started writing in a brand new journal, not unlike Ross Gay's Book of Delights. She calls it a gratitude journal, which sounds earnest. And yes, she's aware, not very cool. It's a simple practice. A couple of times a week, she writes down what she's grateful for. When she started, she didn't have much faith.
8: A few months ago, I'd have been like, this is just like the most ridiculous. You know, it's not going to work. It's like, you know, people are like, get up and walk around the block and you won't be depressed. Yes, I will. You know, (laughs) and eventually this gratitude journal is going to turn into a chore. Another thing that I can't keep up. That has not happened at all. Like, it really helps to remember good things that mm-hmm. happened to you.
1: It's been shockingly effective. In his delight essay at Bird Feeding, the poet Roske witnesses a man feeding a pigeon in the park. Less than 30 seconds later, he watches another bird, a tufted titmouse this time, swoop down into the hand of a different, wholly unconnected person. A lovely moment, twice over. But... He wouldn't have noticed that second bird, he said, if the first bird hadn't prepared him to see it. Tracy's fans thought of her as their first bird, not only a delightful person by herself, but also a doorway to more delight. Now, she's figuring out how to be her own first bird, to develop a system to do for herself what had previously come naturally. Tracy's back at work, She's making new podcasts, interviewing people, being hilarious. And She's not faking it. When her mom calls with her four-year-old great-nephew, Jaden, she's able to pick up the phone, even if it's hard at first sometimes.
8: She had called. I answered the phone. I'm like, yeah, not doing great. I kind of want to get off the phone. She was like, OK. And then she calls Jaden in, and I'm just like, uh, I don't—because he's got so much energy. Like, you know, when I don't have the energy, he still has the energy. So sometimes I'm just like, get this kid away from me, you know? Like, love them. Love them to death. But, like, I just couldn't do it in, like, times of, like, high stress. And the first thing he says when he sees me is, oh, hey, Tracy. <laughs> like, I just interrupted him from doing something, his important four-year-old duties. Hey, Jaden, how you doing? Blah, 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 blah. And then my mom will go, ask her the question. And then I'm just like, ugh, I don't feel like it. But then he says, okay, I have a question. And then I'm like, what's your question, Jaden? Why are you so cute? (laughs) And I instantly just perk up and smile. I know what the question's gonna be. I know I still don't have an answer. And I know, like, even as he's saying, I'm just like, it's not gonna work. But as soon as he says it, I'm just like, I don't know, man, why are you so cute? I don't know. Being able to deal with family and a hugely energetic child is definitely a sign of, like, mama's coming back. Sophia home now.
1: <laughs> was that a color purple reference? It was. It was. This is the blackest this American <laughs> life has ever been. <laughs> Sophia home now. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> Tracy Clayton is the host of the podcast Strong Black Legends. Our program today was produced by me and Dana Chivas. Our staff includes Elna Baker, Emmanuel Berry, Zoe Chase, Sean Cole, Noor Gill, Damian Grafe, Michelle Harris, Mickey Meek, Lena Masitsis, Stone Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Ben Phelan, Nadia Raymond, Robin Semyon, Alyssa Shipp, Christopher Swatala, Matt Tierney, and Nancy Updike. Our managing editor is Diane Wu, our executive editor is David Kestenbaum. Special thanks today to Heaven Agatu, Michael McKenzie, Emily Miles, Ethan Freed, Amy Marsala, and Joanna Kagan. Our website is thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Thanks to my boss, Ira Glass, who guided me as I hosted the show this week. He really got stuck in. Though, it did get a little annoying when he brought his soup into the studio. I'm Bim Adewanmi. Ira Glass will be back next week with more stories of This American Life.